Okay, hello and welcome to Realcom's second webinar in the series titled Operational Technologies That Are Changing the Built Environment. I'm Chuck Neiswanger, your Realcom host for today's webinar, Cutting Edge Operational Technologies and Case Studies. As companies explore the latest technology offerings that help them meet net zero carbon targets, guest and tenant safety, health and wellness, and maximizing efficient operation, they want to know how companies have met these business objectives and what's coming in the future. That's what we're talking about today. But before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items to help you have a great webinar experience. We do thank our live audience and we do encourage you to use the Q&A box at the bottom left of your screen to submit questions or comments. It's always better when you're an active participant and let your ideas and questions be known to the panel. Maybe we'll be able to answer them right here. In the handout section in the part of the control panel there, you'll find more detailed bios of our panelists and a copy of today's slide deck, as well as the one from part one of this series. For the best webinar experience, we do recommend closing out other internet applications, especially streaming videos. We have an outstanding panel with some interesting results to share about their projects, you really don't want to miss it and you might even want to take a few notes if you are experiencing any technical issues with connectivity sound video quality the best thing to do is disconnect and click on the webinar link again you can also email ian thompson that's i thompson t-h-o-m-p-s-o-n at realcom.com for help during the event but don't worry, uh, you won't miss anything because later today you'll receive a link to the recording of this entire session. So uh, you, you really wouldn't miss anything at that point. Uh, I have also included at the bottom of this slide, my email address in case you're watching this as a recording and then you have a panel uh, question or you want something that you'd like to express to the panel, just send it to me and I'll forward it along to them. This educational webinar is supported by our outstanding sponsors. Akita Box is industry-leading software for assessing and optimizing facility performance with easy-to-use tools for data collection, analysis, and reporting. FreeSpace helps some of the world's largest employers overcome the key workplace challenges of too much real estate, unsuitable space types, and bringing employees back to the office. Their suite of proprietary products, configurable apps, and software provides a fully integrated approach to fulfilling these goals. Michael Baker International, with more than 3,000 engineers, architects, and planners, and experts across nearly 100 offices in the United States, Michael Baker is a leading provider of engineering and consulting services, delivering innovative solutions to complex infrastructure challenges. Reaply, puts reuse on the table for every business. By combining digital marketplaces and inventory management with sustainability solutions, your organization can keep valuable products and materials in use, reduce costs and landfill waste, and help you reach your ESG goals. We are grateful for the contributions by these technology partners to our industry, to Realcom, and to helping us educate our viewers in sessions like these. So be sure to include them in your next vendor evaluation process. Our moderator for today's webinar is Donnie Walker, partner at Newcomb and Boyd and leader of their Intelligent Buildings Group. Welcome, Donnie. Hi, Chuck. Welcome. 
Oh, uh, there you are. I saw you coming back on camera. Well, very good. All right. Hey, Donnie, let's, let's run a quick poll. We've got a pretty large audience, so this should be pretty good. We'll run a quick poll. If you could just tell us what's the position in your company. So, Donnie, by doing this, we find we can tailor some of our discussion to match or address something specific, uh, and it could change the course of some of the conversations. Yeah, that's great. So we'll give it just another second or two here. Not a real hard question. Just decide how you want to do that. All right, let's take a quick look and see how our audience blends. So as we thought, the large group, large, the largest group being the top three there. So uh, I think you'll have a valuable discussion and I think it's timely for this, this particular audience. Very good. All right. All right. Well, Donnie, I'm going to get out of your way. You'll see me at the end and we'll close it out. Uh, have a great webinar. We'll talk to you. Okay. Thanks, Chuck. All right. Um, so as Chuck mentioned, I'm uh, Donnie Walker. I lead the uh, technology and intelligent buildings group for Newcomb and Boyd. Um, Newcomb and Boyd is a consulting engineering firm that specializes in uh, connected smart buildings. Um, and we really work with a lot of um, owners and end users uh, to help them solve new challenges with technology. And with our topic today, cutting edge operational technologies, um, I think we have a really interesting panel that really brings a diverse offering across what we would call operational technologies. A lot of times we're thinking of operational technologies as systems and buildings, advanced uh, technologies in those systems or new sensors or new data platforms, but um, really what we have here today is everything from the backend infrastructure that makes everything uh, connected and work um, to new applications that are solving new challenges related to things like flexible workplace environments, uh, advanced asset management, and dealing with technology in a circular economy. So um, we're really looking forward to bringing everyone on, uh, introducing these new um, operational technologies and platforms, um, and then getting into some conversation about what they're seeing in the market and what they're uh, experiencing with their uh, products and services. So um, first on, we're going to bring on uh, Mike Smith. Uh, Mike is the president with Whitespace. Um, Mike is a real estate technology expert with more than 15 years of experience focused on technology, operations, infrastructure, innovation, and energy saving solutions for the real estate industry. Welcome, Mike. Hey, Donnie, how are you? Doing good. Thank you. So, um, you know, I, thought, I wanted to kind of take a little twist on some technology that we're seeing and, and talk about one in particular that's really hitting the multifamily space um, and just making all kind of waves. And it's really giving a new opportunity to things that we've been seeing in the office environment for quite some time. But, but ahead of that, I was asked to kind of give a quick update on a project that I've been involved with uh, since 2017, or my team has been involved with since 2017. And um, th that's the, um, the Water Street Tampa project. Um, it's not changing. So we got engaged back in 2017 to, to create a different technology experience in a downtown um, area of Tampa. If you don't know the project, um, it's about a 50 plus acre site, um, a little over 9 million square feet when it's all done, um, right around the waterfront and around Amley Arena. And it's really transformed the way we look at um, uh, 
the downtown environment and that this truly live, work, and play environment. Um, some of the things that we had some big aspirations back in the day, uh, back in 2017, are really, really coming to a head now, and we're just now really getting started implementing a lot of unique technologies. Um, some of the things that are done in phase one, so phase one is complete, and I'll show you a map in a second. Um, three residential buildings, two office buildings, a hotel, and a lot of retail um, all along the first floor of all these buildings. So it's a really unique experience. We, were, we had the opportunity to create a comm corridor at 16 four-inch conduits that run throughout the entire district that we get to own and control, which really opens up for this concept of uh, a technology sandbox, allowing companies to come play in our, in our space. Um, we, we deployed something uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about here in a minute, what we call universal access network. It was a technology that we saw at Wembley, um, and we've been able to deploy that on a large scale across the entire project. Um, we've worked with the um, cell phone providers to, to have a meet me room. So they all come to one location and through the comm corridor, they're able to light up the projects. Um, we're, we're doing kiosk digital signage. Consistency of systems was very important. So all the buildings have the same system so that we can we can aggregate them together. And, and, and as I mentioned before, it's really this, this idea of a technology sandbox. We want companies to come test their technology in a downtown environment that's very dense, people always moving around. The Emily Arena is always has something going on. So it really allows companies to, to test their technology. And we can deploy quickly because we do control the infrastructure. Um, just a quick map of the site, if you don't know where it is in downtown Tampa, everything south of Cumberland here is um, um, completed. And now we're moving north, north of the site. And um, you know, we, have, we have a lot of technology that will be implemented um, across the next uh, over the next 12 months and uh, really looking forward to what that's going to become and you know we don't call it a smart city we call it a smart district and um, really looking forward to sharing uh, in a few months um, our plans and uh, give you an update of where we're going um, I pulled this off of a, um, an article back in 2018 from realcom and I know those of you who've been around for a while we have always been talking about specifically in the office environments, the idea of this converged network. Why are we allowing everyone to put their own network in between security systems and uh, Wi-Fi providers and the phone companies and you know, you name it, everyone had their own networks. And you know, I've heard I've heard Jim and Howard always talk about how many networks they've counted in buildings back in the days. And it was it was pretty crazy. Well, I feel like the office environment has really shifted to that concept of converged networks. And, and that has been since for a, for a few years, multifamily has been a little behind that, right? Um, up until recently, we would have AT&T install their own network or Comcast install their own network, and then you'd have an owner's network and you'd have a security network. So you had easily five networks in a multifamily building. And we were, again, running into the problems that we always had in the office uh, world with all these networks, but, it, but it, it shifted dramatically. And that's really what I wanna talk about today at a very high level. And, and the concept or, the, or the, the technology that we call this is really managed Wi-Fi. And, um, you know, so, so what is managed Wi-Fi? Managed Wi-Fi is um, the idea that you move into an apartment and you stay fully connected as you roam through the, um, through the apartment. Um, it's, you know, um, residents love it because it helps with to solve a lot of issues, which I'll get into before. They're not calling and having to have someone roll a truck to set up equipment. It provides the security that they want. Property owners love it because it's an NOI opportunity um, and, and it gives them additional revenues, which again, I'll kind of go into in a minute. And there's, there's quite a few other benefits that, that we are seeing in this, in this technology. Um, I'm gonna skip that slide. 
So what is the difference? And those of us who have been around multifamily, we've heard of the bulk internet uh, issues back in probably 15, 20 years ago now. And bulk is really a four-letter word in commercial real estate. And there was this whole evolution of people debulking and trying to get out of this because people just hated it. I mean, it was not a good experience. If I'm in my apartment and I go down the street or down the hall to Donnie's apartment, I have to then, you know, log into his network if he's willing to give me his credentials to even stay connected. And, you know, we know connectivity is really king in commercial real estate. Um, so that was the bulk model. If you look at the if you look at the image, if you have a 300 unit apartment building, you were effectively putting in 300 networks in the building. Now, the infrastructure wasn't that dramatic, but there were routers and switches and modems and and wireless access points in every apartment. And it just wasn't run very efficient. Fast forward to today, this concept of managed Wi-Fi is casting a net across the entire building. And, and now Wi-Fi goes entirely everywhere throughout the building. And, and when I mean everywhere, I mean like in the elevators, in the basements, in the garage, um, you name it, especially in new construction, we're, we're designing it so that it really goes everywhere and it really follows you, uh, follows it with you. But what benefits do the residents or, or what are we seeing that is really the benefit for this? Um, Wi-Fi calling. We don't see a lot of DAS, a cellular DAS in um, uh, multifamily. It's just, it's not cost effective. And, you know, and there, there was this, always this saying that if you build it, that all, of, all the providers will come and that wasn't the case. And so it was depending on funding was and where it was, it, was, it became a mess. So with Wi-Fi 6 coming out, um, it, it really changed the Wi-Fi calling experience. So now we're casting this net as I leave my apartment and go down the hallway, get in the elevator, go to the basement below grade, I can still stay fully connected. So it solved a lot of issues from there. Um, I mentioned the NOI for owners. They're, they're, we're seeing close to around a $35 to $40 rate per unit per month that the owners are getting. Um, and, I, and I'll talk why that's important here in a second. Um, the IoT space is, is, is exploding within multifamily. Now it's not the IoT space that we're hearing in office, right? So most of the time, Owners don't care what's going on behind the front door, meaning we're not monitoring the HVAC. We're not monitoring these different solutions. It's more of an experiential thing. So allowing a resident through an app to control or to access their door lock or control their thermostat or turn lights on and off. That's really the smart apartment or the IoT that we're seeing in multifamily, not as data driven yet in, in the office environment. Um, and I mentioned before, it, 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 cover, it provides that better experience for residents um, and, you know, while we don't call it the converged network, it really is something that, that um, those of us who kind of go between both verticals, um, we look at as, as, a, as a converged network. So what, what other things would, would this managed Wi-Fi help us, right? Um, we call it an enabler, and it's an enabler that has been missing for a long time within multifamily. And it, it allows for other companies and other vendors to connect to it. It allows for this single network, this converged network, to have a smart apartment, what we call an aggregator attached to it, to connect smart thermostats, unit door locks, visitor management, the access control. And it's managed um, by the company or by the partner that the owners bring in. And so it's really transformed the way that we're looking at buildings. I think the next evolution that we'll see within multifamily is the type of data that we've been doing in office for years, right? Really trying to, to uh, make everything as operational efficient as possible, getting data, making better operational decisions.
So one, one, a few, just real quick, a few um, key risks that we always make sure we understand owners were uh, understand is residents don't get a choice who their internet provider is. But what we're seeing is they don't really care. Like if you go to Starbucks, do you care that the the, the internet is through uh, Spectrum or AT&T? No, you, you just want it to be fast and reliable and secure. And that's really what this brings. Um, it is possible over time, you worry that the, the, the fees could go up because these are typically five to seven year contracts. Um, and that, that, that is a, uh, a concern for, for, the, for the owners. And if, and if the residents have a bad experience, um, you know, if you bring the wrong partner in, that could be uh, disastrous and, and people could want to move out of there. Um, so anyway, just, just a little highlights, just a few highlights on, um, you know, the multifamily space, what we're seeing and um, uh, manage Wi-Fi uh, specifically as it becomes an enabler um, uh, to the multifamily space. Yeah, that's great, Mike. Um, you you mentioned Wi-Fi as an enabler, and you know that's definitely something that we've seen in the multifamily market. That um, you know, in the past when there was no actual network in the building, the only network in the building was the you know individual <clears throat> internet circuits ran to the residents. There was really nothing to build on for the you know owner developer, and so you know as you started looking at opportunities to um, deploy new technologies, um, that was the you know the the cost to enter the market was well I got to build a network to do that and you know, I don't I don't have that in the budget and so this introduces a you know a whole new avenue. Um, well, so and, and also with that, Don, is, is if if a resident moves out back in the old model, that unit goes dark. So depending right. on what you're monitoring there, whether there's leak section, whatever, you, that that goes offline, and that doesn't really help us from an operational perspective. So you mentioned the the net operating income uh, opportunities for managed Wi-Fi. So um, how how has that impacted you know the the decision on you know in the past I didn't have a network now I do. There's a, there's a cost element there. How how does that really work out financially? Yeah, there's always been a, a revenue opportunity even with back in the day with bulk, but it's really increased now with managed Wi-Fi. And, and I mentioned earlier, it, you know, call it thirty dollars or four, thirty to five to forty dollars per unit per month that an owner can receive. Now we have owners who are making $70 a month. It's kind of a, an, an anomaly, but what we're seeing is, as you know, it, everything's going to the cloud, access control, cameras. They all have a, um, a SaaS model or a fee that you have to pay per month, per channel, per camera, whatever it is, that a lot of companies, it, it, they're not allowed to roll that technology up because it, it completely blows their, their operational budget, right? So what we see is that NOI that they're getting, they're able to help use that money to help fund the other technologies, because all of those technologies really tie together the resident experience. We got a question from the audience, and I, I have a feeling this one's gonna be a softball for you, but it says, uh, um, how are you addressing security with everyone sharing the same Wi-Fi network? Yeah, so um, I mentioned before, we went over to Wembley in London to look at this technology, and it was a technology that Ruckus had invented, others have followed suit, but, Everyone's on their own private VLAN, so I can't see you, you can't see me, and I'm not I'm not the security expert here, but I will say that um, you know this technology, to my knowledge, has never been hacked at these conferences. They keep making it stronger. Um, it has a you know a personal security key, a PSK, that follows you around, and that's really the difference. Also, in the, from a managed network versus just a traditional bulk, is um, you you do have a little control over that uh, from a security perspective. And then uh, one more question with um, pervasive Wi-Fi, you know, being a major benefit to the operators, uh, you know, as well, not just the tenants. So what, 
what all technologies are you seeing uh, being routed over this network that you know that could not have happened a few years ago? Yeah, you know things like again just traditional IoT leak sensors, uh, door locks, uh, video intercoms. In the retrofit market, it's pretty interest, interesting. I wouldn't recommend doing a bunch of Wi-Fi cameras, right? Because the noise and it starts having issues. But in some cases, you may not have a choice. So you may have a, a specific area. You can throw a Wi-Fi camera up there. You can throw Wi-Fi sensors. So having that network, uh, it's a very robust network, allows you to expand what you need to do within the building. And really, it's focused around the operational, right? Being able to, as your staff rolls around, to keep a tablet and stay fully connected because uh, we know cell phone issues in buildings are, are always an issue. So it's it's just really kind of up the game as it relates to the operational side of our business. Great. Uh, one last question. Um, what are you seeing with the management of Converge Network post-installation? So cost and vendor, vendor management and uh, quality and responsiveness. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would jokingly always say that, you know, there's, I don't know, there's probably 50 managed Wi-Fi companies out there right now that are focused in multifamily. And the term is like Kleenex, right? It kind of means something different to everyone else. Um, if you get a good partner in there, there is no additional fee for that. Now, they're not going to give you 40 ports for IP cameras, right? But they may give you one port that you can manage and then you can hang your own switch off of there. So um, as part of the management fee, for these companies managing the, the pervasive Wi-Fi throughout the net network, there is no additional cost for them to do that. Great. Well, thanks, Mike. I'm sure we'll have some more questions when we come back together as a panel, but that was uh, that was really interesting. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> Next up, we have uh, Brian Vaughn with uh, Cushman and Wakefield. And uh, Brian is the Senior Director for their Global Innovation Hub and Digital Advisory. Hey, Brian, how are you doing? Doing great, Donnie, especially now that I unmuted myself properly. So that's always step one. Um, All right. So, Brian, uh, tell us a little bit about what your team does for uh, Cushman and Wakefield and, and your clients. Sure. So Cushman and Wakefield, if you haven't heard of us, um, we're a provider of real estate services across a number of different uh, capabilities around transactions, valuation, property management, facility management, engineering, uh, et cetera. Um, our group, the Emerging Technologies Group, is really focused on helping keep tabs on, on what's happening in, in real estate technology and helping share that information across our different business units. Especially more recently, we've been getting a lot more runway to help pluck conversations out from the different silos at our business units and bring them together and actually have those conversations as a group. Uh, we're not trying to get everybody on the same page or necessarily make the same decisions. I don't think there's a lot of success uh, in doing that, but at least we're trying to work off the same homework, uh, share notes, collaborate and things on that nature. And it's you know really helping raise our collective knowledge, helping make our people in front of our clients more aware of what's going on in the industry uh, and being able to make quicker decisions. So um, that's, really what like our emerging technologies group is focused on and then we also have advisory so you know like while we're able to educate people on the different technologies if they need help making a decision trying to figure out how it fits in with their people and process um comparing you know fault detection versus an operational data platform right we do have people that are experienced in that nature as well to uh chime in there so with the new operational technologies and things that you're seeing in the market, has that changed the service model or potential offerings that Christian Lakefield has for your clients? 
It is. Um, and then there's also some, you know, challenges of changing the model too. I think you'll see from us and some of our peers in the industry that we're starting to get more data centric in how we're operating. Um, there's a lot of potential still to figure out who is going to own and provide those technologies. Obviously, there's advantages and benefits for uh, Cushman or our peers to bring our own technologies into play, but also our clients are interested in having their own technologies because they know the service provider may change um, and they don't want to have to switch like technology platforms because their service provider changed. So I think there's a little balancing still going on between whose technology is it and who's bringing it to the to the party, uh, but it's definitely changing. It's becoming you know more clear how it's valuable. You know, like LBNL doing research showing you know 50 million square feet over five years provides a definite benefit for fault detection diagnostics, right? You can't question those things. We got a question from the audience on the value, and I, I hear this a lot from anyone that has a, a portfolio that they're managing and they're considering new technologies. And so they're saying, what value do you place on acquisitions where a converged network is in place and where this is the case, how are you conducting your due diligence on these assets? Sure, I don't know if that was targeted more for me or for Mike. Um, that's a little harder for me to put my finger on yet. Um, or may, maybe maybe to you know to make that a little more um, broad than just converged networks. Uh, really, for a lot of the smart building applications, whether it's a converged network, integrated systems with FDD, you know, it's one of those things that you you know there's operational benefits, <clears throat> but there's always a question on is that is that asset now more valuable because it's connected and smart? Um, so I see this in two different perspectives. There's the there's your traditional global occupier, you know, Fortune 500 company that's occupying spaces versus your asset owner. Um, the key piece for me is when we're looking at a lot of the the subscription models and cloud hosted platforms. The part that I believe needs to get sorted out with the acquisition process is the ownership of the information within those cloud hosted pieces, right? Like those are linked to user accounts. Those are linked to contracts that are signed by the previous owner. So those things all have to be defined better in that convergence process of transferring one building or transferring a building from one asset owner to another asset owner. I think it would be a lot easier if all that stuff lived in a little black box in the building, like all the drawings um, right. and the BAS computer are in the in the engineering room. It would be much easier because then, like, along with the the chief engineer, like, and the the documents, like, those all just go along with the building, right? Uh, but those are still some things that are getting sorted out. I would say. I've also seen with a lot of the newer uh, cloud applications, like with some of the cloud security systems, that they're able to combine multiple properties to give you an operational environment that's more like building out an enterprise system. But then if you sell off a property, they're able to break, break that back off, potentially sell that service to the new owner. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think that flexibility to be able to add value, but also not be completely tied into an enterprise application that kind of, if you, if you take that box and walk away, now the building has no, no brain. Yeah, and Donnie, you know how you know where that's going. I mean, you're you're getting into your independent data layer, your interoperability conversations, because obviously all of those things that will make it easier to uh, bring a new building into your portfolio or allow your new owner to take over those systems within your your building, you're transferring out of your portfolio. Um, those are all 
historically the places that we've built up those walls to capture, you know, like we historically didn't want somebody having the choice to change service, service providers. Um, and I don't say service provider from a fishman perspective, but like, you know, you're building automation system or your, your camera system, things of that nature. You didn't want that new owner to have the option and wanted them to make sure they stuck with you. Right. That's right. And with a lot of the new IP systems, we're, we're really getting that plug and play convenience and uh, dealing with the data on the back end is kind of becoming the, the, the new avenue to really be able to make use of that. Agreed. Yeah. So, so another question that we have is uh, cybersecurity continues to be front and center regarding commercial or multifamily. So with all that you have presented, uh, how are you addressing cybersecurity uh, and the steps to securing things within your, uh, your client's environments? So Donnie, no offense, man, but I think this one's still for Mike. <laughs> Sorry, it may be. No worries. I, I think Mike needs to get the typing. Um, <laughs> But if, if it's okay, I think still most of these are still related to uh, the Wi-Fi question. So kudos, I think Mike hit a struck a chord there. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we'll we'll pull them back on at the end, and we'll 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 hit lots of questions around sure. the around but the Wi-Fi environment. If time permits, I had a couple of things I just wanted to hit on because okay, go ahead. Like Mike shared some some information, and and I think some of our uh, some of my follow-on uh, presenters are going to share some use cases about some great technologies and. One of the things that I just wanted to pull in here are just some some considerations and keep me honest on time, Donnie, because I, I could probably ramble on here. Uh, like, so I don't have a case study to present, but I just wanted to talk through like what we're seeing when we're dealing with our clients and our account teams uh, when we're trying to approach this. Um, I think one of the key things that we're seeing is that oftentimes that you know technologies aren't necessarily focused on. Um, all the different end user journeys. Like they're focused on the end user potentially, but not always the supporting role. And that's one of the things that we always wanna put out there in terms of, uh, especially when we're talking about cutting edge operational technologies, right? Uh, nothing is bulletproof, you know, not even established technology. Helping these things through that journey, which is obviously something that's very, close near and dear to my heart at Cushman is just like, how are my, how are, how are my colleagues going to help you in the building, right? Access control through Apple wallet. It's great. However, somebody's going to have some challenge somewhere with their phone and their Apple wallet not popping up. Right. And they're going to come to our property manager asking, why isn't my phone working? Right. So those things need to be considered. Um, the other aspect quickly is just like multi-generational design. Uh, managed Wi-Fi is great. Like, you know, one of Mike's bullet points was that you, know, you can likely not need require a DAS system in your building because people have Wi-Fi calling. I agree, but even me, for some reason, my phone that I purchased uh, is a flagship cell phone from a major manufacturer. But since I did not purchase it from AT&T or Verizon directly, it's a unlocked phone and it's therefore not supported by Wi-Fi calling. That's not the case for everybody, but myself or maybe some other people who aren't tech savvy don't know how to turn it on. So how do our property managers support those things? So that's definitely one of those, you know, multi-generational pieces that we need to think of. You know, some people also are more willing to accept that technology will work or doesn't work. Uh, my Echo, if she doesn't, you know, my voice assistant, if she doesn't recognize that I want to turn on my lights, I'm okay with the idea that she didn't understand me, right? Other people are not, especially when it comes to access control. Right. Uh, so just quickly, I know time we're getting close to two things or three things. I just want to get out there. 
One, you can't be too rigid on your solutions. Expect that people are not going to want to necessarily adopt this. So it's really important to align strategies and, and requirements around these things and then enable people to bring in ultimate solutions. Like if you pick one solution that's going to be your standard solution across portfolio, it's going to be very challenging to get everybody in line, depending on the size, right, and your abilities. Uh, so be thought conscious on how you can be flexible and supportive of multiple things. We're on a journey. This isn't a destination. We're on a journey. So I think working with somebody like Donnie or myself, talking about that future state, we can all draw a very pretty picture of what that will be. But obviously, everybody's going to get on at a different point. But having that picture of where you want to be is a true north to make sure that all these little opportunities like a lighting control retrofit or a BAS retrofit or bringing on a software platform is an opportunity to get one step further on that journey. And then the last thing, it's all about people, process, and technology. So defining a success manager is key. Like yeah. whether it's your vendor providing it, whether you're providing it, or whether you're working with a consultant to providing it, having somebody focused on the success of whatever it is you're doing is especially important. More so when you're dealing with multiple vendors, like a hardware software scenario is crucial to having this. Like think about a tenant app, the key to tenant app adoption is access control, like your mobile credentials. If your mobile right. credentials aren't working, your tenant app isn't gonna work and vice versa. So those are some of those key things that I just wanted to get out there. And I think with all technology, as it's introduced, focusing on change management, which is um, you know, really part of what you were saying, but it's, you know, it's that adoption, it's knowing that there's someone that can you know, help you if you used to do things one way and there's a new technology that does it this way. You know, kind of helping someone across that divide really goes a long way because then that adoption rate goes up once there's a comfort level. But there's a lot of times there's resistance to new technology because there's just a, not a comfort level of what that user experience is like. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's people in process. Think about those things first. What are you trying to improve there and align right. the technology? Like we're not we're not looking at WD-40 and duct tape, which can fix every situation. Right. All right. Well, thanks, Brian. We're going to bring on Fred next. We're going to make him answer that cybersecurity question. Great. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Fred, I think we have a, a video to uh, get started for sure. uh, Michael Baker, and then we'll jump into uh, some conversation here. To make a difference. That's our calling at Michael Baker International. Our work is more than a highway overpass, an airport runway, or a bridge. It's more than a transit station or a water treatment plant. Our work connects people and drives our communities forward. Our work turns ideas into reality and transforms how we live. It all began as a spark, an idea. There's a better world out there and we will create it. Today, we are the designers, the planners, the engineers, the architects, and the innovators. Bold enough to dream the impossible. Dedicated to making a difference. Stronger together. We've built a legacy of excellence that's brought us to the forefront of our industry. And we're not stopping there. We are problem solvers, working globally to create a safer, more accessible, more sustainable tomorrow. We make a difference for our clients, our communities, and one another.
All right. <clears throat> Welcome, Fred. Glad to be here. Thank you, Donnie. Yeah. So with um, Michael Baker uh, working in a, a lot of different uh, markets and verticals, and uh, there's you know, new technology that's you know, different and vast in each one of them. So as, as we get more and more things uh, connected to the network and new operational technologies, how has that changed the cybersecurity paradigm and how you address cybersecurity on an operational technology basis? So I want to start with a little something because this relate, relates to this. I'm working on a paper right now and I was doing some research and um, this one kind of struck me a little bit. The reality is businesses have, uh, buildings have had smarts in them for over 90 years. Now I stopped and thought about that. It's like, you know, how is that? Well, in 1931, Wilcox Pier Restaurant installed automatic doors. So nowadays we see automatic doors as almost a, um, just, you know, it's a given, right? I mean, and, and there are cases where I think it's IBC 1105 uh, mandates it for certain buildings and it has to be there. Well, those that technology now is not smart. It's just, it is what we have, um, what we're used to. And that's what we're contending with. I mean, this this topic here, cutting edge operational technologies. Well, what we're doing today is it going? It's not going to be considered cutting edge. So, um, sure. I'm saying that for this thing. Michael Baker um, has made a commitment to do. Uh, we work with Idaho National Labs, and we are working to develop what's called cyber-informed engineering. And what that means is we're basically baking into the process of our engineering design cybersecurity from the beginning. And, um, you know, across the different cybersecurity groups within Michael Baker, we have military and Fed. Uh, they have established guidelines that they've been using for years. We have an industrial cybersecurity group that, you know, I came in thinking, well, these guys have already got it all figured out, right? But they're still, you know, trying to figure out their side of uh, like water systems and that type of thing. And then my group, the group that I'm the head of, is the commercial cybersecurity group. And I you know, I know uh, you guys have been working with us on building cybersecurity and looking at 62443. And I'm sitting here listening to the gentleman before me talk, and I'm watching the questions come in. And, you know, part of that engineering strategy I, is taking something like 62443 and creating what they call zones and conduits. Now, I've been seeing VLANs thrown in there, and that's, you know, essentially zone and conduit is that. It's it's basically what it's saying is from the design all the way down to the the network that supports it, you have to give it forethought. You have to determine what systems need to talk to what. Even inside of the system itself, you need to make sure that the subcomponents of it, like for example, if you're cooling an atrium, okay, if it gets a little hot, that's not great. But if you're cooling a data center, that's a problem, right? But nine times out of 10, that same system that's cooling both of them, uh, there is a single system, let me say that, that's cooling both of them. So you need to take that in consideration because you got to be able to throw that switch. In other words, if something happens to the, uh, it's happening to the system on the, HV, uh, the atrium side and it's getting warm, you know, that could be an indicator, even uh, not necessarily of a cyber attack, um, but you gotta be able to 
segregate those systems. And that's what zoning conduits is all about. And finally, I'll say this is um, we made a commitment about a year and a half ago, and we created a group called Sustainable and Resilient Solutions Group. And all of our design and all of our um, engineering, whether it be brand new construction or retrofit or whatever, is we're looking at whether um, cybersecurity, not just from an aspect of, of a cyber attack, but if you stop and think about it, if you put in the processes, if you do the separations, if you do the um, the hardening and that the type of thing to your systems, it's going to make them more resilient, resilient against attack, against human error, against equipment failure. And so it's not just about cybersecurity. Yeah, because I know, you know, as, as new technologies come out and you see IoT sensors and these kind of things, you want to be able to deploy those technologies but you don't want to open up you know, a larger risk window. And so with a proper zone and conduit, you can say, yeah, we, we have a segment of the network for that. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, if, if that device is hacked, you're not getting into our security system. You're not getting into our building automation system. Those, the, those networks are isolated from each other. And it also helps you define, um, you know, I mean, Danny, I know you know this, that you can cyber secure yourself right out of business. That's I right. mean, <laughs> so, I mean, you've got to take a pragmatic approach to it. And so with, I like the way that um, BCS and uh, ISA has 62443 look at things. They look at it from a standpoint of let's, let's determine the security level for each one of the systems and let's secure them accordingly. Right. What is my overdue. acceptable amount of risk? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. And you know the the that right there is um, the acceptable amount of risk. I, I I can't tell you the number of times that I ask people. I said, "Do you know what your risk tolerance is?" And they 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 can think about it in terms of IT or or, or different processes, or whatever. But when it comes to that building, not many people have done a risk assessment right. or to create a risk tolerance for each one of the systems. All right. Well, thanks, Fred. Uh, I know that we will uh, get into some more uh, conversation as we uh, pull the panel together. I appreciate you being on. Thank you for having me. All right. Next, I believe we have a video from Akita Box. Meet the data collection tool of the future. Say hello to Akita Box. Our user-friendly data capture app makes gathering on-site data easier, faster, and more accurate. Teams in the field can use Akita Box's digital floor plans and asset mapping software as a step-by-step -step guide through the building. Whether you need an asset inventory, facility condition, accessibility, or energy assessment, digital floor plans allow for easy knowledge sharing between teams and departments while still allowing each user to add custom data fields to track the information that's most important to them. Users can also easily add location-based notes, upload photos, scan assets through text recognition, and record recommended actions in real time during data collection. The Akita Box Capture app works even offline. But that's not all. We're also the first and only end-to-end -end assessment software. Complete an entire assessment from initial data collection all the way to the final report in one software tool. Welcome to the data collection and assessment platform of the future. Welcome to Akita Box.
All right, so we're going to welcome uh, Josh Lowe with uh, Akita Box, and we have Haley Guerin with uh, Clear Energy. And so um, they're going to tell us a little more about the uh, application side for using Akita Box. Welcome. Awesome. Thanks, Donnie. A um, couple quick things before I kick it out to Haley and let her talk about all the great things that she's doing over there at Clear Energy. Um, Akita Box is really a facility data software. Um, <clears throat> one thing that I've heard over the years is garbage in, garbage out. And frankly, what I've seen even more than garbage when it comes to asset um, and facility data is incomplete data sets um, and collecting data for specific uses, uh, throwing it away, and then when it's time to do it again, um, collecting it again. And so what our goal as Akita Box is specifically and especially in the commercial real estate realm is to really be a best-in-class software to get out there in the world and, and do that data collection using tools like uh, OCR, uh, AI, um, and trying to cut down and make that process as efficient as possible. Um, with that, I'm going to be quiet and turn this over to Haley and let her walk through um, why they chose Akita Box and, and what they're doing to, to really push the envelope when it comes to data collection and offering services. Great. Thanks, Josh. Uh, so I'm Haley. I uh, develop and implement energy efficiency projects in a pretty big variety of real estate verticals. And um, I have recently had some pretty incredible experiences with what I consider to be my early adopter clients who you know, are starting to set some large ESG goals uh, or make net zero commitments and are realizing that the services that my company offer uh, can really help them to kind of kickstart that. And uh, one of the big lessons learned that has come from that is exactly what Josh was just talking about. You know using technology to create some really dynamic and live, uh, you know, driving deep value in the reports that we're giving and the projects that we're developing. So going to take a couple minutes to uh, stand on my soapbox and talk to you all about that very same thing. So um, just really quick, want to run through the why behind including building operations and capital investments as part of an ESG commitment. So uh, buildings make up around 30% of, or sorry, 40% of global CO2 emissions when you consider construction and on-site energy use and the transportation of energy that's being produced off-site and used in our buildings. Uh, so buildings make up a pretty big chunk of the emissions that we're typically pledging to eliminate through our ESG commitments or climate commitments. Um, and it's currently being estimated that around 70% of the buildings that are standing today are still going to be standing in 2050. Um, so you can kind of consider your existing building portfolio, the emissions that are coming from that as your committed future emissions. And that can also be translated as your committed future risk. Um, and this concept of risk is kind of hitting us from two angles. So we've got the idea of transition risk, uh, so how are our assets being affected by the transition in local policies and regulations and also in our tenants' individual climate commitments? And then we've got the actual physical risks that come with the changing climate and the aging grid infrastructure. So these transition risks and the physical risks, they're going to impact our revenues, they're going to impact our operating costs, and our capital cost in some pretty significant direct and indirect ways. Um, so that's kind of our why behind including operations and capital investments in an ESG commitment, what you're putting in your building and how you're choosing to operate it. 
uh, can have pretty significant implications, both from an ESG perspective and financially. Uh, so now we're just going to drill down a little bit into the how. Um, so my world is existing buildings. So, you know, I'm, I'm working with a lot of clients that have an existing building stock. Um, a lot of them have had many renovations year after year. And, uh, you know, it's kind of difficult to keep track of, of everything. So that's kind of what we're going to look at here. Um, so if you start with just kind of your classic scope one, two and three emissions breakdown, you can see that the easiest scope um, emissions to control come in the scope one and two kind of categories. So where are scope one and two emissions coming from? Primarily, they're going to be coming from the systems that are installed in our building that are heating and cooling the air and water that we use in our buildings. So it would stand to reason that if we're wanting to reduce the scope one and two emissions, that we'd be looking for ways to reduce the energy that's used by those systems. Um, it would also stand to reason that once we reduce the, that energy use as much as possible, we would find a way to use the remaining energy use uh, as a way to create a new revenue stream. But uh, we will start with the baby steps for now. So uh, kind of just plain and simple, if you've got a building and, and it's existing and you don't really know where to start, uh, what you need to do is you need to know what you own. You need to know how much energy what you own uses to do its job. You need to know how long you have until you need to replace that thing. And then you need to know if it's more beneficial to your ESG goals to replace it with another version of itself or with a new technology that uses even less energy or a better energy source. So those are really the, the basic steps that you'd need to take to figure out, you know, what does my capital plan need to be and, and how is it going to affect my overall ESG goal? Uh, so if you do, you know, all of that work and you collect all of that information on your assets, the kind of classic way that my industry has done for years and years, then you're going to compile this really amazing report with lots of information on your equipment and you're going to put it in PDF form and you're going to hit print and then you have just officially wasted all of your time because inevitably, as soon as you hit print, something in your building has already changed or there's a new technology coming onto the market that you would want to use instead of what you have designated five years down the road in your capital plan. So enter a technology like Akita Box. Uh, you know, our goalposts are shifting and our buildings are kind of in this constant state of flux. And we've got new technologies, more renewable energies being added to the grid. And you really need a place for your capital plan to live where these metrics can be used to reevaluate and reprioritize the plan in real time. So for me, you know, I'm building energy efficiency projects for my clients and I'm oftentimes collecting information on their old buildings that they previously didn't have access to. So to me, a technology like a key box is something that's not just going to make my my team's site work a little bit easier, but it's actually going to arm my clients with a, a, fr a framework and a foundation to build their capital plans and address their ESG commitments uh, when it comes time to future proofing their buildings. All right. Thanks, Haley. Yep. That uh, sounds like an amazing application. So um, you're gathering data to be able to do this and, and really um, you know, feed this into the Akita Box application. What, what all data are you trying to accumulate and, and what, what's, what's the hardest to gather from the client? So, I mean, a lot of this stuff from our perspective is going to be, you know, the physical assets inside of the buildings. Um, so 
you know, like I said, a lot of my clients, they have existing buildings. And so they don't really have the luxury of, you know, a really great detailed drawing set or, you know, list of equipment that they're that they're working from. Um, so that's the information that we're running around and collecting. You know, typically that goes in a PDF document and they never look at it again. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how we're using this technology. And it's anything, you know, the, this product has the capability to do a full facility condition assessment. So everything from the sidewalk outside to, uh, you know, a VAV box. Yeah, we, we say that all the time that, you know, access to that existing building information becomes an impediment to new projects that, you know, so, someone thinks that it's somewhere, but they don't know where it is. So I, I love the idea of the <clears throat> of the living data that you're, you're not just collecting something that they can print out and put on a shelf, but you're giving them an application. So are, are you seeing uh, owners adopt this as a, you know, may, maybe you are using it for an energy improvement project, but then saying, we, we want to keep this up going forward so that, you know, something we may want to do five years from now, we, we still know where our data is. Exactly. Yeah. So for us, you know, we're we're putting together a one time project typically, but we are collecting this information and it's so incredibly valuable. So we're seeing clients start to understand that value and, and really ask for that up front and say, you know, is this something that that we can use to kind of set a capital plan when we start looking at, you know, making these net zero transitions or clean energy transitions. So, uh, you know, this is really one of one of the foundational steps that you would take if, say, you were looking to electrify your buildings completely. You know, how, how do you do that in a way that falls in line with when you would regularly be making those capital upgrades versus doing it, you know, kind of one fell swoop at a time and spending a ton of money up front? From an energy use and uh, carbon emission standpoint, are you connecting in to get, you know, real time or monthly data to to have that as more of an automated data collection process? So within Akita Box, we're not necessarily tr uh, targeting real time usage, but okay. um, it's yeah. So it's a technology that kind of goes hand in hand with our utility monitoring and emissions monitoring. Got it. Okay. Donnie, we, have, we do have some clients who are doing that um, mm -hmm. and actually starting with that BMS or BAS data as their baseline, um, okay. especially if they're looking at, I want to hire Haley to go in, but I don't have the money to do a full comprehensive assessment, but I want to go look at those energy hogs or the ones that look like they have weird run times um, and using that data to pair the other place that we're seeing some interesting traction, Donnie, is, you know, Haley's out gathering that information, right? She's taking pictures of the nameplates. She's getting make, model, serial number, all of that information. And one thing that's interesting all around is the disconnectedness of our information. Um, I think a lot of times we go, well, yeah, I have all that runtime information in my BMS. And you right. log in and it goes, yeah, uh, data point two, three, four, five, six has an issue but you're not tracking that against, I own a bunch of facilities. Is my train outperforming my McKees? Am I, you know, how are we using that data to analyze? So bringing it back to a single data set so that we can look at BMS data, the physical data, the condition data all in one spot um, doesn't really exist under a lot of organizations today. Yeah, that's what we see that, you know, there, there's a lot of data out there, but unless it's really accessible for someone to use in evaluation purposes, it's uh, it, it's just never going to get used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on, and um, 
we'll uh, we'll join you back in the panel discussion. Absolutely, thank you. All right. Next up, we have a uh, video uh, and presentation from uh, Reefly. Businesses have been thinking a little bit more about like, how do I make a dispersed, decentralized business centralized? How can I connect my employees to things that are in another employee's home or another employee's satellite office? So all of those have created kind of a storm for businesses to really be thinking about how do I operationalize this thing called circularity or circular economy? And we think we have some really great answers. You need technology and a reuse to actually connect people who have stuff with people who need it within the same organization or who need it in the community. So we build at a high level, we build technology to help organizations with reuse. But what does that feel like? It feels like your employees going to a platform of the stuff you already own before they go buy something new outside of your organization. Or an employee recognizes that there's something that they have in their possession that they no longer need, they can make that available to everyone in your organization through our platform. And it really helps reduce procurement spend on the one end, but also waste creation and carbon emission on the other end. Hi, Valentina. Hi, Donnie. How are you? Good. So next, we have Valentina Rappa with Reefly. And uh, Valentina is the Senior Sustainability Manager for Circular Economy for Reefly. Valentina? Perfect. Thanks, Donnie. I think we actually are going to run a quick poll before we jump into the slides to get a sense for what everyone's experiencing with building openings and decommissions. Great. Okay. So a majority of the folks on the line, nothing planned for the near future, but a lot of folks that either have something currently underway or within the next six months and also within a year out. So either it's already happening or you have some time before it happens. Okay, great. Well, that's, that's helpful context um, for us. You know, we wanted to ask this poll because I'm sure all of us right now are witnessing a lot of building clear outs. Uh, these become way too common since the pandemic hit and uh, the world kind of turned upside down. Right now, there's about 20% of office spaces in the United States that are sitting empty, which is even worse than the 2008 financial crisis, which is kind of crazy. Um, and this rapid rise in closures, we see at least, is traditionally viewed as a challenge. But if there was an opportunity to view these buildings as, and everything inside of them as not just a challenge for how to close them or how to get rid of this stuff, but actually an opportunity for how to make use of these spaces and make use of the things that are inside of them. Um, you know, what if an organization was able to easily reuse products and materials in their own operations or sell and donate them to another nearby organization? And while you're doing all this, you're able to collect financial, environmental, and social data on the impact of that reuse. While all of this is happening, this is nicely aligning up with your ESG goals, and you're able to track that impact. And this is really what the Reaply platform can provide. We are a technology that facilitates reuse and tracks the impact of those reuse efforts. So one of Reaply's customers, Alina Health, was in a similar situation over the past two years. This is a large hospital system in the Midwest. 
They have about over 100 facilities, including clinics and hospitals, and they have almost 30,000 employees that were faced with really two key challenges. They were seeing numerous closures of clinics. This is all happening under very short timelines, which is pretty common across a lot of companies. And all of the furniture and equipment inside these clinics were unfortunately going to landfill. They also found that across their real estate portfolio, they had little to no visibility into all the items that were sitting idle, either in storage closets or in basements, while clinics and hospitals were continuing to buy new stuff left and right. So there was just clearly a disconnect between the amount of inventory they had available and then the new inventory that they continued to purchase. Alina Health happened to be an organization that places a pretty high value on making a positive impact on the environment. And uh, this large employee base of 30,000 employees really wanted to find ways to reduce their waste across their operations. There was a very clear drive across the company to push an effort like this. They thought it would be easier than it seemed to be to do this at a company level. So, in, you know, looking for multiple sites that can participate in a reuse program and track this impact at a high level. So across the organization, you can see what, what impact it comes from. Um, but over time, they really found that this was really hard to do this and scale it up from one site to multiple sites. And they needed some type of technology solution to help them scale this and actually see the significant impact that reuse can have when it's, it's scaled up. So Alina Health launched the Weekly platform across their organization. And since doing so, they've seen um, $100,000 in savings. They were able to donate over 150 items to local nonprofits and ultimately diverted 14,000 pounds of waste from landfill. And um, I think some of these metrics can be hard to connect with or, or understand, but at least for the waste metric, if you think of a really, really big adult African elephant, then that is a great reference point for what 40,000 pounds looks like. Um, in addition to all these metrics, they were also able to track the embodied carbon that was avoided through reuse, which for Alina Health was around 87,000 kilograms. Going back one. So, you know, you might be thinking, where did they use these items? Where did they end up? Who even wanted to take these used items? Um, and because these items were in pretty good condition, they were able to reuse art and lounge chairs for a clinic that was going through a refresh. They also were able to revamp a cancer center and that um, they took these cubicle walls that were in another space and used them in the cancer center, which allowed them to even transform the storage room into a private workspace. So just looking for ways to actually use their space differently. And those were some amazing opportunities, especially because the value of their products were pretty high. Now, if you're looking at some of the work that Align Health is doing, and the impact that they're seeing through reuse, and you're curious how reuse could impact your own operations, then I really recommend that you think through it in three key buckets. First off being financial. So when you're faced with budget cuts for your facilities, please look to reuse as a money saver. It can save significant amount of money. A lot of companies have very high quality products that are in very good condition, uh, but are sitting idle or are not really being used to the fullest. Um, this is an opportunity to make use of these items before purchasing new. So keeping track of your current inventory and looking to that before trying to purchase new. A second for environmental aspects, you know, we acknowledge that the impact from reuse can have a really significant um, reduction in your waste sent to landfill. 
It can also help you with addressing your scope three emissions. Earlier, we heard about scope one and two, where we're at a Reapley, we really focus more in scope three. So we're looking at categories like purchased goods and services, capital goods, and waste generating operations. If you're including a really comprehensive reuse program, then you can see impacts across those three categories. And then lastly, from a social perspective, if your organization no longer needs these high quality items, internally at your organization, then finding a way to strengthen your relationships with local nonprofits, schools, and small businesses through donations. So really sharing these with your local community uh, for organizations that are more in need. And you know, if you hit on these three key benefits of reuse, then allows you to grab attention of various stakeholders and get the buy-in of these different groups without your, throughout your organization so that you can really have a large scale successful reuse program where you can see significant impact on your ESG goals. Yep, that's great. I um, I love your uh, example there. Uh, I think in the you know construction industry, we know how to build and buy new. Um, and so we see, you know, many times that there there is things when you're moving from one location to another that still has value and, you know, usually you know, that means we put it in storage until it has no value. <laughs> the storage becomes its its stopping ground on the way to the landfill. So it's great to exactly. be able to usage of that, um, you know, and 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 be able to get it back into um, into operation. Um, so you you mentioned, um, you know, if internally you don't have that need. Um, like I know here in Atlanta, we have the Lifecycle Building Center that uh, will repurpose. Um, construction materials, um, you know, right. doors and windows and, and those types of things. Um, have you also seen um, something similar as it relates to technology, to uh, to reuse and apply technology, display screens and computers? Yep. And For sure. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, you know, um, the example I shared here with Alina Health was looking at majority furniture and equipment, um, but our platform is definitely asset agnostic. So folks use it for anything from like lab equipment to the furniture that we typically see to also a lot of technology equipment. Um, of course, tons of companies, yes, are really high tech now and all conferencing that's used in, in conference rooms. Um, when they're going through refreshes on a frequent basis, those technology equipment are very much items that we look to and promote reuse of. Of course, in some cases, you need to just ensure that the second use of that item is still going to be um, working correctly and you have all the cables and the wires that's necessary. There are some more complications that come with that than you might see with furniture, say, but um, that is definitely another asset that we look at when we're trying to track uh, reuse. So how do you advise your real estate teams to consider and calculate the ROI for this type of technology investment? Yeah, um, so I'll share an example of, of one um, a calculation that we ran with a client and then also broaden it to to share some ideas of how you can go about doing this if you don't have all this data sets available. Um, but one thing is, you know, we were working with a design team at one of our customers and they were going through a large refresh of two buildings on one of their campuses. It was a fully internal refresh and um, they already had a ton of furniture in this building. So we first took a full inventory of all of the assets that were currently in the building. And we applied a an average market value. If you were to sell or you were to buy that asset new today, what would the market value of that item be? Um, and then for this case scenario, we applied a 30 to 50 percent reuse rate. So we said that 
of all the stuff that's in these buildings, they're going to reuse 30 to 50% of it. Um, and when we came out with that calculation for just these two buildings, we found that they could save four to six million dollars in their upcoming refresh project if they reused between 30 and 50%. Um, and so, of course, in that case, it became a very clear no-brainer that they needed to use a technology that would allow them to facilitate that reuse. But if you're in a scenario where maybe you don't have that, that data, you don't know all of the assets in your building, you weren't tracking that so so great before, um, you know, you can take an average per like square foot of, of your space to get an understanding of how many furniture items, or in this case, if we were talking about technology, different pieces that you'd expect um, in that space, and then apply a market value cost to that to understand what the monetary impact would be if you actually reused at scale. You know, Replay does have, we have like an ROI calculator on our website that I can make sure is shared in the chat here. That is a more simpler version of what we did for this customer so that you can get a, an idea of what that looks like. That's great for uh, all of the projects out there, which is uh, almost all of them that are facing budget constraints due to escalation. It's a, it's, exactly. it's a, a untapped resource there. So that's, that's uh, really great to hear. Well, uh, thanks for joining us and uh, we will uh, join you back in the panel discussion. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. All right, next we have a, a video from FreeSpace. At FreeSpace, our purpose is to organize the world's workspaces to make them as hybrid ready and efficient as possible. FreeSpace, the space to work effectively. All right, thank you. Uh, next on, we have uh, Sarav Makar as the CTO for FreeSpace. Uh, Sarav, tell us more about FreeSpace. Hi, Ronnie. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, uh, really going through the session with other people. Uh, it's great information that we are basically having here. So yeah, talking about FreeSpace. Uh, 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 so basically today, we, I'm here to speak about uh, some of the uh, case study, one of the case study that we have uh, in terms of uh, what we have done with one of our customer, uh, but more or less like uh, uh, before that, I would like to walk you everybody through, uh, you know, how uh, we can help in transforming to a strategic, financially viable and a sustainable work workplaces. And uh, the data that we are basically going to show, uh, see here today is mainly backed, uh, uh, you know, by a global survey, um, which is basically done with free space together with IDC. Uh, so I'll just go to the next one. Yeah. So uh, what are the companies like, you know, uh, getting the workspace right is the is now paramount. Like we are living in a, a hybrid world uh, post COVID. And I think like there are a lot of uh, challenges that companies are facing today uh, with, with, with workspaces and also with employees uh, getting back to the offices. So I think the key implication uh, that basically uh, today that matters is like the employee experience and the business performance. 85% uh, of the organizations link that uh, to, uh, to you know like the employee experience to the higher revenues uh, while collaboration is a key 54 um, percent uh, of the organizations globally feel that their team is most productive uh, when they're physically in the same space and which is a challenge today to get people collaborate and be physically together with each other how do you basically achieve that uh, 51 percent uh, uh, companies think like uh, you know like uh, the three factors that are indicated uh, as as a reasons for leaving uh, the companies not having a sense of belonging uh, 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 to the workspace itself. Uh, so I think like these are the key implications uh, with the data as we see here. 
now what are organizations doing uh, to uh, achieve uh, what basically uh, you know they think like needs to be done uh, to to uh, achieve uh, the first three uh, points uh, one out of the three uh, are redefining the workspace uh, so today world is changed uh, people are looking at uh, workspaces in a very different way uh, so hence like there is a lot of redefining redesigning requirements and needs that are evolving 45% of the remaining offices for meeting rooms and training collaborations uh, is basically uh, 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 reimagining those offices spaces promoting programs and policies to bring workers back to the office now this is a key initiative that we are seeing across uh, as a trend and a pattern across the globe how do you basically get people back to the office one out of the three implementing uh, meeting room management solutions uh, to basically uh, solve like how people will collaborate together and allocating specific times for teams to be in the office to improve collaboration. So that's the 38% of the organizations globally are trying to do that. Now, there are some key challenges uh, uh, when you basically try to do that. And that, uh, that when it comes to uh, uh, people or the employees of the company, as well as the real estate uh, that uh, the company has uh, in terms of the office space, uh, typically are looked at from the three levels, right? At a C-suite level, you are thinking at a, to both the challenges in a way where you have like uh, probably the challenges like you today has too much of real estate how do you basically make an efficient use of that and how do you get employees returned to the office that's the one uh, top problems today with the c-suite or the executive levels uh, that we are faced, that we are seeing across the globe uh, whereas uh, uh, to transform that uh, the the facility managers or the people who are the space operators they are basically uh, trying to solve like how they will uh, redesign the space which is uh, more suitable and it is uh, efficiently uh, operating uh, you know with with energy reductions and the other uh, sustainability goals being met whereas hr managers are more focused uh, from an employee experience perspective and the organization culture how those things will basically get impacted and and and, and in a hybrid or a remote working uh, world uh, you know how you still uh, keep that alive so on the right, as we see uh, here, right, uh, uh, the collaboration and cultural challenges push for towards a physical collaboration, uh, which then leads to uh, uh, designing of the workspaces uh, to basically meet uh, and and utilize the space properly, but without an income, you know, uh, a complete data which basically tells you the behavior and the usage of the workspaces, how people are coming and utilizing the space, how they are collaborating. Uh, uh, and if and if the employees are not having the interactivity with the uh, with the workspaces that itself it leads to poor employee experience at the end and uh, also basically uh, leads to lower attendance which basically means uh, the real estate spaces are being wasted and uh, there is worse sustainability so some of the consequences um, uh, could be like that and the result is uh, as i said and the main reason uh, is basically the incomplete data so to solve that uh, at free at free space, uh, we basically believe uh, uh, in in uh, highly into the right size, right design fundamental. Uh, so for making making the right design choices, you need to have the data, and the data is where the answer is basically in the sensor driven uh, technologies. So we offer uh, you know a lot of uh, sensors uh, which can uh, uh, sit inside the office space, uh, which is uh, which will basically provide and capture data on how the space is being utilized. Uh, so there could be occupancy sensors which will give you like how the desks and which areas of uh, the offices are more occupied on certain number of days. Uh, 
then you can basically uh, see like which of which meeting rooms or the spaces are being utilized more and how much uh, is the of that space itself is being utilized with some heat maps uh, showing like where the collaboration is happening um, uh, and which areas and the open areas are being utilized or which areas are being not used at all right so you can figure out like occupancy levels collaboration requirements and redundant space uh, using the sensor driven technologies and uh, to basically and uh, get it uh, easily understand there is dashboards and analytics uh, platform that we have behind that which can basically uh, provide uh, uh, all that data at your fingertips and that will lead uh, you know to basically making right choices and uh, when it comes to redesigning the office space but is that enough uh, i think like uh, more than uh, more than what uh, the data provides through the sensors it's also important uh, that the employee experience is also uh, one of the key uh, reasons of like you know getting people back to the office uh, so we believe that there has to be a seamless interaction with the office spaces office spaces should become interactive where people are able to interact with them uh, so and um, you know like a signage uh, which basically provides uh, a view of the floor or the building uh, and can guide people when they're coming into the office whether it's the regular employees the visitors the guests it provides a good way of uh, of interacting with the office on the other hand uh, so, some kind of uh, mobile application which allows you the employees uh, to access their office space uh, where they can book the spaces uh, the car parks uh, before coming in uh, uh, into the office they can choose which part of the office they want to sit uh, it can also basically uh, you know uh, brought in bring in the social circle uh, of the company where you can also see okay when, when is my team coming into the office or the people that i would like to collaborate are coming into the office and you can plan your week accordingly so i think like uh, bringing that uh, on the on the employee side uh, helps hr and the facility managers plan uh, and and provide employees a way to uh, plan their weeks and on office visits, which can lead to a lot of uh, benefit when it comes to the overall experience the employees are having uh, while coming back to the office. So, uh, having said that, um, uh, you know, like uh, um, I wanted to basically now bring uh, our attention to one of the customer case study. This is a big insurance company, Willis Tower Willis. Uh, which is basically been, we have been working with since 2017. Uh, we started in 2017 with an initial pilot just at one location. And uh, we basically started with desk and a meeting room uh, monitoring uh, sensors and a digital signage. Uh, after that, with, uh, all throughout 2018 and 19, uh, there was a global rollout uh, based on the uh, success that we saw at the pilot location. Uh, they were very interested to roll it out on a global scale. So this led to uh, uh you know more than 150 desks globally and installed uh, 27500 uh, occupancy sensors uh, 25 250 wayfinding digital screens so this uh, you know was basically a big rollout that kept happening over the two years and as you see in 2020 a lot of benefit was realized out of that so some of the numbers uh, as in put in there uh, so we utilized the analytics to identify unused spaces this helped them reduce 20% of the office spaces uh, at lease breaks and diverse divestment points, equating a $100 million saving, which is like a huge amount of money they saved uh, across their different uh, real estate portfolio, uh, and uh, increased desk ratio from 0.87 to 1.08, uh, and 
more than 65 offices consolidated globally which is almost like 2.4 million square feet of space uh, which was basically realized and uh, and it was all done with using the sensor technology uh, data and the digital screening data that was available uh, then this was uh, forward uh, forwarded in 2021 and 22 when post covid uh, you know people were uh, looking for hybrid solutions uh, free space came up with a booking app and that was uh, uh, you know like a, a quite a uh, runaway with the customers where basically uh, that was given like interactivity with the offices so right now we are basically uh, you know continuously increasing the space there and uh, and and lot of uh, the rollout has happened on the booking app uh, and we continue to do that within 23 and 24 yeah that's great um, so you mentioned uh, in the pilot you deployed uh, the sensors what what sensor technology are you using and how do you see that technology evolving over the next few years so uh, we are uh, you know uh, the way we basically approach this we want to become uh, we have like a, a wholesome approach to this right so we are not just uh, providing hardware side of it or the sensor side of it but also the uh, 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 the analytics as well as the other software pieces that can basically bring the overall experience uh, for and the uh, overall value to the customers so when it comes to sensors uh, donny like we are into multiple sensor technology uh, we provide sensors which are for the desk or the meeting rooms uh, which are different sensors when it comes to dense it's desks it is more about occupancy when it comes to meeting room it is more about like how the collaboration space or the meeting rooms are used so it's a different kind of a sensor uh, we also have uh, you know gone into the sustainability or the energy efficiency side where we are providing sensors which are leading into pure pure air module which is sensing the carbon dioxide footprints into the office spaces uh, projecting that and providing dashboards to that to utilize uh, you know like uh, uh, the spaces uh, which becomes more and more uh, safe for the employees as well as help cust uh, companies to uh, you know be certified uh, when it comes to uh, energy em emissions great that's great so you're ingesting all of that sensor data and being able to use that to help uh, run a more efficient workplace absolutely so we have like that's that's all backed by our spot platform that we run in the cloud and all the sensor data is basically uh, going into that behind that we have like a uh, you know analytics data lake running which basically simplifies that data and provides in a simple meaningful dashboard for all the levels which can then allow them to make uh, useful decisions. All right, well, thank you, Saroop. We will uh, bring on the rest of the panel here. We have just a, a few minutes left for kind of a, a, a full group uh, discussion here. Sure. Um, and uh, we'll look for uh, for any questions um, from the uh, audience that, uh, that we have. Um, and in the meantime, I'll just kind of kick it off with, um, you know, I think one of the reoccurring themes that everyone has uh, discussed today is that you know, some of our challenges is either access to data or, or reliability of data. And so we're you know, solving a lot of challenges by um, getting that information at folks' uh, fingertips and, and developing new applications on ways to use that data. So maybe if we could have um, each, each person kind of talk about some of those data challenges and how you're helping to solve them. I'll tee that up to anyone. <laughs> I can jump in first. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think for us, data definitely in the space that we work in, where we're looking at the physical assets that they fill buildings with is 
in many cases just does not exist right now or is very limited, very inaccurate data. Um, and so we've been, when we work with customers, it's usually starting from like no data at all and building it up. And, um, and throughout that process, we still see challenges with inaccuracies in that data. For us, we're looking at mainly um, the, the details about the product, the uh, weight of the item. So if it's a chair, the weight of that item, that manufacturer, the model of it, the condition is really critical to understanding if someone else is gonna use that item. Um, and of course, in our case, if it's in use right now or if it's idle and it's available for somebody else to use it. So those are some of the key data points that we collect that in many cases never existed before. Um, and then with that data on the back end, then we're able to relate that to carbon emissions associated with embodied carbon by using the weight of of the product and the emissions factor. Um, and then we're also be able to throw back the total weight of items that are reused. So in, in many cases, this all aligns more when the company is looking at their, their emissions associated with their purchased goods and services. How much are they putting towards the items that they purchase for their operations? And how much could they potentially um, avoid by, by looking at reuse? Yeah, that's great. I, I see that. I see that time after time that you know that someone is in, in charge of managing an asset, but they don't actually have even an inventory of the asset, more or less the you know the the condition of of what that asset is. And so, um, yeah, yeah I, a lot of spreadsheets as a, as a challenge. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Donnie, I guess like from our perspective, is I, I, everybody has a different opinion on the data piece. In my personal opinion, is you know, like more data is better data or not necessarily better data sorry more data is better and people are like people either are of the belief that you have to make sure that the data is accurate before you use the data um but i guess i have the perspective of if you can collect the data you can make start with the assumption that like almost like a zero trust network assume the data is wrong right and make sure that the way that you're applying the data set validates the data first before you actually draw some conclusions on it um, because that way then you can actually just focus on trying to collect the data and let your applications and software sort out um, the data and then you can see what data is wrong rather than trying to fix all the data first and you can you know like kind of find that percentage of data 20% 30% whatever that might be inaccurate then you can go fix that piece and you're still benefiting from the rest of the data yeah we, we see that like with a retro commissioning type process that you know even if the data is bad just that it produces data at least I now know that I have that asset and we can work on it in improving the data and hopefully improving the uh, performance of that equipment yep. once once that data flow is happening. Yep. Yeah, so I think when when, it, when we are talking about data, uh, data primarily, uh, you know, like the accuracy of the data comes into picture, right? As we keep talking about uh, data accuracy and then how you can make intelligent decisions based on that data. I think today's age when AI is becoming prominent, machine learning is there. You require a lot of data and, uh, and that uh, will help, uh, you know, make uh, things more efficient uh, when it comes to technology. Uh, but if your data accuracy is not there, uh, you can put an army of people behind that as data scientists and you can, you know, try to massage that data. So uh, what I have seen uh, pretty much like in this space where we are operating, um, a lot of people are trying to make decisions based on the data that they're collecting from various sources, trying to aggregate that data and then trying to make sense of that. And I believe like uh, one sensor technology is a big boon in that, right? Because then you are getting data uh, continuously uh, and you are basically getting accurate data. So you can rely on that data. If the data reliance is there, that can lead to a many uh, outputs. And that's where the analytics or the artificial intelligence uh, can basically be made way into that. 
That's right. And, and the triangulation of data is also very valuable. So if I have sensors telling me, you know, how many people are in a space or in a building, and if I can help validate that with, you know, maybe the cardholder data or, you know, different aspects, then now you can start to really start to trust the data because you've kind of validated it through that triangulation. Absolutely. And when it comes to machine learning, you basically are reliant on the data because to train the models, uh, you require that data accuracy. Uh, and most of the companies that I've seen are trying to, as you said, right, access data, router data, Wi-Fi access, all kind of data they try to basically bring in to just get, uh, you know, more accurate. Uh, but that requires a lot of work behind that, and still accuracy is is questionable. Yeah, Donnie, I'll throw one more thought here, and Brian, I, I agree with you. As long as you start out with everybody agreeing on sources of truth, that's right. Where does data come from? Who authors that data? Because I run into instances too often where they go, we have all this data. And to Valentina's point, like it's all these spreadsheets and you get these spreadsheets and you go, holy crap, you had eight different groups who tracked room numbers and square footages and none of them aligned, right? <laughs> and so like to that point, in order to improve your data over time, you really have to have that foundational understanding of what is your source of truth? And you can have numerous sources of truth, but you should only have one for each type of data. Um, for instance, room number and square footage should always be the same across the board. Who's collecting it, who's providing it, and where does it go from there um, it is almost more important than anything else in this process. Yeah, and along with that source of truth, there's there's the stakeholder responsible for that data. And so other people may use it. Someone has to be responsible for it. Absolutely. Well, there you go, Donnie. I think that's it. We're, we're, we've got to wrap it up. You, you know what? I think we've had probably one of the most lively uh, live audiences. So thank you all for that. Lots of questions coming in. I have captured them all, so I'll send them to our panelists and they can get back to you uh, directly if, if your question wasn't answered directly on today's show. So again, thanks to the panelists, valuable contributions. Uh, especially thanks again to the live audience. Uh, whether you've joined us live or you're watching this as a recording, we do thank you for tuning in and be sure to register for our next webinar series. It kind of builds on this discussion a little bit more. It's uh, wireless technology in the built environment. And the first session is on September 14th, a week from today, focusing on the technology options across the wireless frequency spectrum. You'd be surprised how many there are how many are being introduced and then follow that we'll actually do case studies that show how companies are actually implementing some of those pieces so uh, looking forward to all of that be sure and get registered for that finally make plans for uh, core tech 2023 and buildings ai that's going to be hosted by meta in their museum at the meta campus at menlo park in california that's november 15th and 16th if you haven't seen that museum google that meta at uh, or maybe you should facebook i go maybe i shouldn't say google when i'm talking about meta I, I don't know i don't know what's politically correct anymore so uh but anyway it's going to be a great time really do highly recommend it uh again fantastic discussion thank you for the panel thank you for all of our sponsors you guys just make this uh, such a great opportunity and a great educational experience that's it for us that's all we have be safe and we'll see you next time thank you Thanks, Frank.